0: Welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction, a show that celebrates great books and the people who write them. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Heaps of Uriah episode. Today, I'm going to talk about a book that's about books and with an author who loves and teaches about books, in addition to writing them, of course. H.G. Perry is a fantasy writer who lives in Wellington, New Zealand and teaches English literature, film, and media studies. And today, I am delighted to have her on the line to discuss her debut novel, The Unlikely Escape of Uriah Heep. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction.
1: Thank you, thank you, it's great to be here.
0: As I said in the introduction, your book is about books. So maybe we can start by talking about Uriah Heep, whose name, has the special distinction of being in your book's title and I think quite a few people might recognize the name since it's worked its way into the English language as a synonym for someone who is a sycophant or to put it more bluntly an ass-kisser but
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: can you explain more properly who he is and why he's in the title of your book?
1: Well, to start with, he didn't actually start out being in the title of the book. That was something that came from the publishers a long way after it sold. And the interesting thing about that was that I was editing it at the time when that became the title. So it actually it shaped a little bit about what the book was going to be about and what ultimately the climax was going to be. Yeah, so Uriah Heat is from the book David Copperfield by Charles Dickens, and he's the antagonist of that book. He's a clerk that works for a lawyer. And yeah, he's, as you say, he's a uniquely unpleasant piece of work. He's uniquely obsequious, uniquely slimy, uniquely repulsive. And he's the kind of person who's going to be always sucking up to people while while planning their downfall at the same time. And he's kind of a parody of what he knows the upper class wants him to be like and a parody of what was expected of the lower class at that time. So at the same time, as he's doing this to get ahead, he's also a sort of critique of them, and the critique of the kind of side of the upper class that liked being flattered.
0: And he's one of the first characters we meet in yeah. your book, and you, in fact, are not Charles Dickens, but your own no. <laughs> your own clever and talented writer, and you have brought him as a character into your book because that kind of is the conceit of your book. You have your main protagonist, your protagonist, Charlie Sutherland, who has a unique ability. And maybe we should spend a little time talking about what that unique ability is and how he played a role in bringing Uriah Heep heap into your book and into Charlie Sutherland's world.
1: Yeah, so yeah. So the premise of the book essentially is that Charlie Sutherland, who's in a way the main character, even though the book's narrated by his brother, so he has the power to read characters out of books, which is a power that has cropped up in a couple of different books. The slightly different way that he does it, though, is that when he reads characters out of books, which is something he can do, on purpose at other times, but at other times um, it happens by accident, is that they come out shaped by his interpretation of them on the page. Um, as a reader, and also because he happens to be, he's, hes he was a prodigy. He started reading at a very young age. He went to Oxford at a very young age. He became a literary scholar. His specialty is Victorian literature, and particularly Charles Dickens. And the way he's reading and interpreting these books shapes the way they come out. Like, for instance, Uriah Heep, who we see in the very first chapter, the slight spoiler for the first chapter, he's read him out. And at the time when he was reading it, he was coming up with a hypothesis about how Uriah Heep's a sort of social shapeshifter, that he becomes what society wants him to be which is what I was trying to go on about before. So he becomes how he wants him to be. And so when Uriah Heep comes out of the book, he comes the way Charlie pictures him, but more importantly, he comes out as a, sort of, as a physical shapeshifter that has particular abilities and powers. So Charlie can read characters out of books. But as they go on, they start to encounter characters who he hasn't read out of books, who seem to be coming from somebody else, and who that person is and what their intentions are is what they're trying to work out throughout the book. They also encounter a whole street full of people, a hidden Victorian street um, just off a street off Wellington, and most of those just come from us. They come from ordinary readers who at some point in their lives have had a very particular powerful connection with a character, a particular sort of flash of insight about a character, and when that happens, unbeknownst to them, that character can be born into the world the way half the way they are in the book half how the reader has uh, interpreted them shaped them seen them so yeah what you have are a bunch of characters that are in the world that are partly the characters that you get out of books but they're on their way out of those books somehow half of them comes from the way they've been read and interpreted by the people who are reading them and yeah you're right uh, heap's the first one they encounter and the one that continues to cause problems, one of the many that continues to cause problems throughout the book.
0: It is one of the fascinating results of this process that there can be multiple manifestations of the same character. And in other words, multiple Uriah Heeps. And in fact, there are five Mr. Darcy's from Pride and yes. Prejudice. <laughs> and as you said, each is slightly different from one another because it depends on who read them out which is sort of the the verb you use to describe you know bringing these characters literally to life so whoever summoned them from the pages into reality has left their mark on them so even though they're five mr darcy's (laughs) with a little lock of hair all of them on their forehead some are uh more passive than others there's there's distinctions among them depending on who might have brought them forth from the pages
1: yeah absolutely Yeah, and the five Mr. Darcy's particularly. I was half playing with the fact that because there have been so many television adaptations of Mr. Darcy's, people talk about who your favourite Darcy is and so forth, and so I was having fun picturing that. Um, I'm often um, tutoring at universities, and I've tutored Pride and Prejudice quite a lot. Just the way people connect, I mean, to characters in general, but including to Mr. Darcy, my my original idea for that was that the first one was very much he comes from the eighteen hundreds, so he's more of a he's very much the way an original reader might have read Mister Darcy. But obviously the Darcy, all the way down to Darcy number five is the one that looks exactly like Colin Firth and <laughs> is a lot more taken from the nineteen ninety five than from the the book version of him. There's a Darcy that's. And there, that's that's very shy and reclusive because one of the arguments that, or debates that I've had with a fellow Austin fans and fellow, uh, and also with students in class is how much is Mr. Darcy proud and haughty and how much is he just very shy? And there's, you know, there's arguments both ways, but obviously you can do a version of him where he is just a very shy, reclusive person, and you can do other versions where he's a very proud, haughty individual. You can do versions where that are shaped by other things that you've seen and watched. And yeah, so yeah, that's a lot of fun to play with.
0: It would seem as if it would be a really fun and wonderful thing to be able to bring these characters to life. But in the world you've created, these characters, when they are formed, live in secret. And Charlie Sutherland, in fact, for him, although it would seem like a wonderful talent he has, it's really more of a problem for him and has been a problem his whole life ever since he was little and his family has taught him and wanted him to suppress this urge which he which he hasn't really been able to suppress so it keeps manifesting and creating these little mini crises in his life when he manifests you know a Uriah heap when he doesn't want to or a Sherlock Holmes when he might need one but his family is upset that he's done it
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. Yeah. And I mean, I think part of that is, I mean, there's a long tradition of characters with magical abilities who are being told to keep it hidden and to to stay normal and all that kind of thing. And that's, that's a long tradition. And it obviously comes from the fact that a lot of people grow up. Feeling like what makes them special is something that's weird or strange, and that or that would be dangerous to let other people see, and they try and keep it in and conform. And that's true for Charlie to an extent, because obviously his ability to bring characters out of books is tied very closely to the fact that he's also, you know, precocious and and you know, and talented, and that obviously got him into a lot of trouble when he was growing up big even people who didn't know about his magical abilities obviously knew about his intellectual abilities. And I think, you know, it's quite common for people like that to get bullied or feel strange or different in, in school. So part of it comes from that. I think the other side of it, though, is that one thing I really did want to play with in terms of reading and books was that books are incredibly powerful. And there's that real sense of Reading and and storytelling, because it has a great deal of power in the world, it's something that's obviously, yeah, it's very exciting and very pleasurable, but there's also a real danger to stories and storytelling. When you bring something to the world, it's in there and it's got the power to do extraordinary things and the power to, to save the world or to harm it. And there's a real responsibility. And I think we all feel that comes with reading, interpreting and and storytelling, which is something that, as you say at the end of the book, something that needs to be embraced rather than than be scared of. But I think that's that, that's always there, and I think that's that's there as a as a writer and as a reader as well.
0: Well, I couldn't help but think that it's a bit like the mysterious way a writer invents a character in the first place. Yeah. And I mean the process by which Charlie can read characters out into the real world. I thought that parallels kind of snugly with a writer mm. bringing a character out from, I suppose, the neurons firing in the writer's head. They yeah. Words form in their head, they put them on a page, and suddenly this character lives on a certain plain. and in the same way a reader, I suppose, it feels very real to a reader too, as a reader is is reading it. So it f- had a very familiar feeling if even though it manifests in a fantastical way in your story.
1: yeah, absolutely. Both writing, obviously, is an act of creation and reading as well, as you say. I mean, if a character's just words on a page until you're uh, if you're when you're a reader to to bring it life, and quite literally, as I, We're saying, yeah, it's not just a simple matter of you stick a character on a page and if a reader reads it, they're going to get exactly what you put into it, you know. (laughs) They're going to bring their own feelings. They're going to notice things. They're going to identify with things. There's going to be things that you don't necessarily create yourself or aren't aware of creating that someone from a totally different background or a totally different perspective is going to see, take and bring to life. So yeah, so reading is also an act of creation. You're creating your own version of your character as you're reading it. And yeah, and there is, I think, yeah, there's something about that, that both the writing and the reading that always feels very magical and very powerful. And there are many things that went into this book and many origin points for this book. But one of them was thinking about reading and, and, and writing, but also about literary analysis there's a lot of books out there that particularly there are a lot of science fiction books that sort of celebrate the science of of physics, engineering, astronomy, all that kind of thing. There are books that celebrate historical research. I haven't at least really seen that kind of academic character that's that's involved in literary analysis. And yet there is something that's very intellectually exciting, very detective work-like, very thrilling about the act of of literary analysis and the act of reading a book, seeing clues, building, you know, building your interpretation, building um, a particular version of the story for yourself that I wanted to celebrate. So yeah, so that magic, yeah, it's meant to, it's meant to feel like that. It's meant to be a sort of very literal way of talking about the way we bring things to life when we write, but also the way we bring things to life when we read and the way we bring things to life when we engage in any act of literary critique, whether that's just a simple matter of, reading a book for pleasure and coming up with your own opinion of it, or whether that's something that's far more academic and far more building a case about a character. That's something that's always felt quite magical to me.
0: I do want to ask you a little bit more about that. And I also want to talk a little bit about the main conflict in the story between Charlie and his arch nemesis. But before I ask about the arch nemesis, I guess, I do want to ask if you identify with Charlie Sutherland as yourself someone with a PhD in literature who teaches at university, just like Charlie does. And it sounds like from what you were just describing, the excitement of literary interpretation, that it's something that you've devoted a good part of your life to and are extremely interested in.
1: When I wrote that book, I was in a sort of interesting limbo place because it was late, I think I started at late late 2016, it must have been, and I'd just, I'd just finished doing my PhD and I I didn't know whether I was going to keep going with academia or whether I wasn't. I'd also just signed with my literary agent um, the year before and said so we were working with a book. We might have already gone out on submission, but either way, I wasn't sure whether I was going to stay with academia or not. So in some ways, it was kind of a, a love letter to academia and to literary analysis, and still is. I'm not in university full time, but it's still it's still a huge part of my life. With Charlie, I was very aware that there was a, a danger with that literary analysis thing. He could become kind of an author substitute, and I didn't want him to be like that. So um, I was always very careful that his his interests are a little bit different than obviously I. I had to know something about Dickens and Victorian lit in order to to write them. But my studies were always on a bunch of things. But my, my PhD was actually in children's fantasy. So his literary interest was slightly different than mine. And I tried to make sure that his interpretations of things weren't just me interpreting a book. They were coming from where an interpretation he might have had or you know, something that he he would be interested in for various reasons. But definitely... That sense of excitement in analysis and, and in reading came came straight from me. There are parts of Rob that came from me too, particularly the way he feels about Wellington comes a lot more from
0: me. Rob is Charlie's brother, just so listeners now.
1: Yeah, sorry. So yeah, so so the, my main narrating character is his older brother, Rob, who's um, got a huge part of the books. They're inc- they kind of mixed feelings toward each other and particularly... Rob's the older brother and obviously Charlie's always been the younger special one so he has a lot of jealousy on the one hand but also a lot of desire to protect him uh, on the other and I'm an older sibling so some of those older sibling feelings I'm very close to my younger my younger sister and we don't hate each other but um, some of those older siblings came for me as well so yeah that's an interesting balance.
0: And so let's talk a little bit about Charlie and his arch nemesis. Now, that person is a mystery for much of the book and part of Charlie and Rob's challenge and some of the other characters' challenges to figure out who it is. But I thought maybe you could say... What it is that his nemesis—and that's a very lit- literary term, but it's one that the—it's arch- the right
1: term. Yeah. Nemesis, <laughs> right?
0: It's sort of—I mean, it makes sense in the context of the book to use that term because that's the term they use. Uh, what is that nemesis up to? What is what is the that person's goal?
1: Ah, uh, without spoilers, because um, a lot of it is stuff that they're working out throughout the course of the book, and obviously, there's a um degree of twists and turns, especially at the very end of the book, Um, at first, what they know is that someone else is out there and they're reading other characters into the world as well. Um, They discover this two-pronged on the same day, first when um, Rob, who's a lawyer in the city, goes to work and he finds that there's a second Uriah Heep working at his office all of a sudden. Secondly, that evening, when he goes to Charlie's place to tell them about this, they get attacked by the Hound of the basketballs, And up until that point, they weren't aware that there were any other people who could do what Charlie could do in the world. So, yeah, so um, they go on a particular quest to try and find out who this person is. What they're aware of is that it's somebody... Who's been reading characters out of books that seem to be particularly Victorian characters and particularly Victorian criminals? So, in some ways, they're they've at least started out as being a sort of criminal overlord that is able to read out the fictional pickpockets, criminal um, Dickens is very very good at criminals into the real world for their own purposes. As the as the book goes on, about halfway through the book, they start to realise there's this, there's a larger plan which. I'm not sure how much of that to to give away. Well, no, we don't we don't have
0: to go into the the great details, but yeah. I guess one thing that sort of sets up your book and I don't think this is giving too much away is that there's a bit of a clash between a vision and interpretation of Dickens's Victorian England and modern Wellington. Mm. And you've already referred to this street that sort of lives in this liminal in-between zone that people most people can't see, but that's sort of part of Wellington, but it's sort of hidden. It's a bit Harry Potter-esque, like a hidden house, hidden street. But it's a very different kind of world, And, and I felt like you were sort of setting up a conversation between a view of the Victorian world and Wellington. Although it isn't really Victorian England, it's Dickens's view of of Victorian England. And on top of that, it's the person reading out the character's view of Dickens's view. Yeah. So it makes for quite complex layering. But I I guess overall, I wondered what, if anything, we can still learn from these characters and these stories that Dickens tells, because I think we're still fascinated by uh, all those characters. And Charlie as a professor, has written that the opening lines of David Copperfield are, uh, I forget now, did he say the most beautiful or the most perfect opening of a book ever?
1: Yes, yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, chapter one, I am born, whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will fall to another of these pages must show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, interesting coming back to that, yeah, that idea of that tension all the time that's running through that whole book between Dickensian London, which starts out as a tiny street that's off Cuba Street, which is a street in Wellington, and then ends up without giving too much away ends up being something that threatens to take over the whole city. Part of that comes down to the the central conflict between Rob and Charlie, which is just that Charlie's world is very much one of a very literary world. It's one about Victorian England. So that's a particular kind of fantasy world, I guess, that he's interested in, whereas Rob's very invested in the real world and very invested in, in Wellington in particular. So part of that tension between the two worlds that needs to resolve itself is, on one level, just about that conflict between those two brothers all the way through, on another level, of course, as you say, it's because it's it's Victorian London, but it's not really Victorian London. It's a It's a particular literary version of Victorian London, and it's somehow kind of wedged awkwardly in the middle of Wellington. New Zealand's got a really interesting relationship with English literature because we're a colonised country. And on the one hand, there's always been this kind of historical tension with the English culture that got brought over with it. And just even on a very basic level like growing up when I was reading a lot of childhood stories a lot of them came from England they're also you know it was increasingly we're getting a lot of really great New Zealand stories coming through and so forth but um a lot of them still come from England and some of the, some of them were Dickens in fact so part of it's just that, that sort of experience and that tension of reading Victorian literature and in English literature but trying to also fit it into the you know, into growing up in a very different world. And the way those interact is always something that's very often troubling, but often um, often very fascinating and often opening itself up to a lot of opportunities. But yeah, so in terms of your actual question of what we had learned from Dickens, I think there's there's always a value in, in what's con- what are now considered the classics. But in Dickens in particular... He has this kind of reputation for caricatures and larger-than-life characters, and those are still very funny, and they're very great, and, and they, they adapt so well because actors do such a brilliant job of <laughs> eating up the scenery and bringing them on screen. But there's always this kind of, as as the book sort of talks about, he he was very, very socially aware, and he campaigned tirelessly a lot for the social issues of his days. So those caricatures are never there to just just be funny. There's always this... Layer of social commentary underneath them. There's always this interest in um, in the social injustices of his time, and that's something I think that's that's always going to be relevant and interesting. And that's why those characters, the jokes, but also the tragedies, they keep ringing true because they're even though we don't have exactly the same <laughs> issues as as Victorian England does, those kind of things are always ongoing, and yeah, always something that's there's always going to be something there to just keep finding and keep drawing parallels with I mean as you say we you know everyone knows who Uriah Heep is because everybody knows someone like Uriah (laughs) Heep everyone knows someone who's being particularly greasy and obsequious, trying to get ahead um that's not a particularly you know that's not something that's that's ever going to be unique to Victorian England
0: in my picture of New Zealand, which has been shaped by popular notions, not from personal experience. Yeah. It's the place that everyone wants to flee to when the world falls apart, you know, all the <laughs> really? the American billionaires get citizenship there so they can have a place to escape to. And so in my mind this notion, this picture of this fresh, sort of new world young country, juxtaposed next to this sooty dark dangerous dickensian street of the artful dodger and you know criminal elements and such there that seemed to be an interesting conversation to be having
1: i can see that definitely i can see obviously too especially com- compared to some of the bigger countries overseas. Yeah, we're, we are quite lucky here in New Zealand. We are quite sheltered in some ways. But of course, we've also got our own inequalities and our own problems and so forth. And so I think, yeah, in some sense, the other way that works is that I think if you don't think too hard about it, there's a, the, the Dickensian world can feel very comfortable and very fantasy-like compared to what we've got in the in the modern day here. So I think there's a way it can work, both ways, I think, for us who are living here in New Zealand and it's our reality and we've got our own issues and our own problems, there's a sense that even though those Victorian books are very dirty and very dark and dealing with all these these kind of social inequalities, there's a sense that that's in the past, I guess. That's a fantasy world compared to what we're dealing with in the modern day. Particularly, I think with Dickens Victorian always you know you still get that grittiness and stuff. I think it's a lot more so when you think of with Sherlock Holmes in particular, there's a real sense of the Victorian world feeling very cozy and safe and um old fashioned compared to the the dangers of the modern world. So yeah, there's a there's a bit of both, I think, yeah.
0: You don't just have Dickens' characters. Well, we've talked about uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Hound of the Mm. Baskervilles, so Arthur Conan Doyle. And there's a Maori character who pops in. There's Frankenstein. There's Dorian Gray. I mean, there's even Lady Macbeth. So there's quite a range of characters who make cameo appearances. And if I'm not mistaken, you make up at least one major character, and I... I think you made her up because I Googled her name and I couldn't find her. So that was Millie Radcliffe Dick. So is that right? Yeah. I just thought she was an interesting character because she came from books that reminded me a little bit of the Nancy Drew mysteries, a young girl detective. I don't know if you had those in New Zealand, but they were popular here in the 50s. Yeah, Yeah,
1: we do. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. I, I made her up. She was drawing from, I mean, Nancy Drew's perfectly, you know, but she was actually from thinking about, I grew up with a lot of English children's. A lot of them I grew up with, the Enid Blyton books, which were, um, you know, The Famous Five and The Secret Seven, which I didn't realize when I wrote it that apparently you didn't have in the U.S. so much.
0: Yeah, I'm not familiar with those, no.
1: No, no, no. And, yeah, it's it's interesting, I, which I think fine. Hopefully that works. But, yeah, so... um. So there's in a blatant she wrote a whole hundreds and hundreds. She was incredibly prolific. Um, but yeah, a lot of her books, there's a series, a series in particular called The Famous Five. And it's about four children and their dog, Timmy, who make up the five. And they they meet up every summer holidays and they go on adventures and they defeat, you know, much like, very much like Millie. They, they have their own private island they go out to all the time. Um, but they also, you know, always go camping and they go to the seaside or whatever and go join the circus. And they always meet, you know, always seem to find smugglers and kidnappers and terrible, terrible people. And they always manage to secret passages they always manage to defeat them of course and they come home in time for tea and so yeah there's that very um it's a very particularly English kind of mystery what's sort of interesting about them of course is that they're fascinating books because they're they're books that you love when you're usually children's books you read them and you love them as children there's a very good chance you're going to come back and still love them as adults whereas these books some are obviously some adults love them but mo- most people I've talked to have the experience of Going back to them and realising they're actually very, they're sort of unique to childhood. You go back to them and when you read them as an adult, they're very limiting. Obviously, they've got some very troubling um, racist, classist elements in them, but they're also just, they seem very quite dull as, as adults. The interesting thing about them is they the children are always in this kind of perpetual childhood. Like there are you know, many, many, many of these books and they never get any older. They always just seem to meet up for the same summer over a single time. And it's a thing of a lot of children's books from that time period, that kind of 30s, 40s, 50s even. When you go to the children's books of that era, particularly with, with the, little, the plucky girl heroes, you get a lot of heroes who are girls and they're, you know, tomboys and they do these amazing things. When they grow up, it's very rare that you get any adventurous grown woman in those books. I don't think you get any in the Famous Five, and even in in the adult fiction from that time, it's it seems to be that you could you could back then write about young girls having adventures, but once they grew up, they all the all the adult figures are sort of mothers or homemakers or or the like. Their job is to send the children off, and that's it. So I was sort of with Millie. I partly wanted to to pay homage to that kind of british children's adventure thing partly i wanted the detective story element which i think as i said when you're when you're doing literary analysis it feels a lot like a like a work of detective um, detection i should say at times and i wanted that in the book but also i really wanted to with her explore what would happen if one of what would it be like if one of those those girl heroines grew up what would they be like? Because obviously you want that potential for adventure should should still be there and you want them to, to retain that as they grow up. So I wanted to do an adult version of that kind of hero that you used to love reading about when you were a child. And that's partly what she's going through too, trying to work out how to be that sort of girl adventurer when while also being an adult with an adult's responsibilities. And in a way, I think that's the book itself. I wanted to try and make it feel like an adult version of a not an adult version in the sense of it's particularly mature or, or you know mature content or anything, but a a version of that kind of children's adventure story, but that's happening to adults instead. The sibling relationship between Rob and Charlie is something that you get a lot of sibling relationships in children's books. You don't get them so often in, in adult books. So I kind of wanted to, with a lot of that book, I wanted to take a lot of sort of children's story tropes and see what they look like as adults. And obviously with Millie, that's probably the most literal way I did it, that I literally wanted to see what happened if a girl adventurer grew up.
0: Well, it's interesting because Millie, like a lot of your characters, are constrained by how they were written. I mean, they're both constrained and they find ways around it, but at various times she's very upset and she wishes she could swear, but she hadn't been given that vocabulary (laughs) in her her (laughs) books. And there, yeah. there are these funny moments, like Uriah, he, I forget who comes in, Rob or Charlie, sees him, and he's leaning over a ledger or something and writing. And it was just because he didn't know what to do with himself when he had free time, because yeah. that's how he was written. He was always seen scribbling. It's really no different than, I think, being a human who's raised a certain way, and we all have habits, and we're all taught certain things, and and we spend our lives living within some of the constraints we were given, and trying to break free of them when we when we think some pattern of behavior isn't working for us. So, so in a, in a way, it made me think we're our own novels.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they are, and it's part of the climax of the book. Again, without giving too much away, involves um, Rob kind of taking hold of his own narrative and learning how to tell his own. As I say, we're we're not just narratives, but a, but a lot of our lives our li- our lives are narratives that we're trying to navigate and that have been partly written by other people but we also of course have the power to write ourselves to an extent there's a lot of influences on all of us and again and it's that that idea that that all the characters come to terms with that that in the sense we're all protagonists of our own stories but we're also always um secondary players in other people's and so yeah learning how to how to interact in the world and how to break free of the stories that have been written for you, but also become you know, aware of other people's narratives around you. Yeah, it's definitely something that's that's happening that I wanted to play with. Sally's the main character in a lot of ways, but it's narrated by Rob all the way through. And his, his art is about him learning to... Again, it was something that was really interesting to me when I was thinking about how their relationship was going to figure into this whole idea of literary analysis. And part of it... I sort of realized was that the way we read and interpret books is also the way we read and interpret other people. Just like when we read a story, we're in some sense creating our own version of that story when we're watching other people and we're trying to read and interpret them and we're trying and we kind of come up with our own version of that person in our heads as well, which especially when it's someone you've grown up with and someone you know very well, we're often kind of blinded to what they're really like and we create our own version of that person in the head so Rob who has this image of Charlie right from the start that's very contaminated by his own his own jealousies his own feelings about him his own need for I mean he's got the sense of Charlie as being very vulnerable and needing his protection which he learns throughout the book is not necessarily as true as he wants it to be and so yeah I wanted to make sure he had his own narrative all the way through. And that part of that narrative was about learning what his own story was and how to take possession of that and being comfortable with the idea of stories and the idea of the real world.
0: I know you have another book coming out next year. Is that right? You you want to give a little preview about what, what that is?
1: Yeah. Um, it's quite different to unlikely Escapes, so I'm very glad they let me do it. Um, it's a duology that's coming out. The first book's coming out next year. Hopefully the next book's coming out. The, um, the year after the first one's called it's called a declaration of the rights of magicians which is obviously a play on the declaration of the rights of man it's a historical fiction kind of in the vein of jonathan strange and mr norrell in the sense that it's it's about that time period it takes it's an alternative history of the world and particularly the world of late 1800s early 1900s and and what would the world be like if there was magic in the world and particularly it's, it's a world where people are naturally born with magic but the the right to use it only belongs to the upper classes at the start of the book and it covers the period the first book covers the period of the french revolution the early haitian revolution and the abolition of the slave trade so there's a whole lot of interwoven stories from different historical figures and yeah it's essentially a sort of history of that world the way it plays out in our world and the struggle for for rights and revolutions and so forth but when mostly what's what's under contestation is the right to practice magic
0: wow it sounds great and you have the second book done i gather this is something you've been working on for quite a while
1: yes yeah it has yeah the second book's not uh well in some ways it is what happened is that the the sort of um a much much simpler version of this was the very that was the very first book i queried and the one i got my agent for before i wrote uriah heat and what we did was we we ended up it ended up getting very long and very complicated. So we've we've split it into two. And so the first one coming out is is, is the first book of that, which is say is is that kind of French revolutionary period more. Um the second half is, is yeah coming out in the following year. And I'm just I'm expanding and drafting that at the moment. So it should be um hopefully, hopefully it should come out the following year.
0: Everyone should get excited about it. It sounds great, and people should also pick up a copy of The Unlikely Escape of Uriah Heap. And thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I've been chatting with H.G. Perry about her debut novel, The Unlikely Escape of Uriah Heap, which was published in the U.S., by Red Hook just this past July. And I want to thank everyone for dropping by. You've been listening to New Books in Science Fiction. If you subscribe, you'll never miss a show. And if you leave a review, you'll help others find us. So please consider doing that. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. Our hardworking editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And our diligent editor is Leanne Wilson. I'm Rob Wolf, the author of The Alternate Universe, and I'm grateful as ever to serve as your host. Visit me at robwolf.net and on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. Stay safe and keep reading.